Thanks very much for downloading the Odd Job Pod. In this episode, we'll be discussing the work of Sir Sean Connery, who passed away in October 2020. Hello, and welcome to the Odd Job Pod. Please do pull up a chair, make sure you're wearing your best tuxedo, light a cigarette, get your vodka martini shaken, not stirred, and make sure that whatever you do, you don't order red wine with fish. Later, we might even attempt an assault on Alcatraz if we're feeling in the mood for it. Yes, please join uh, myself for this podcast, Gary Andrews, and my co-hosts, Terry DeFellin and Graham Sibley. Um, There's only one thing that we could really be talking about on this podcast. uh, As we're celebrating the life and times of the original Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Sean Connery. Um, Gentlemen, obviously, this is a a slightly odder odd job pod because in... um, in another world, we would be probably of discussing No Time to Die. Um, and instead, we're, we're discussing, you know, the passing of really uh, an absolute icon of the cinema. Obviously, a man who, who has very much defined and is probably the reason that we are doing this podcast in the first place. Um, Sean Connery passed away at the age of 90s in the Bahamas, um, which is, feels like a very James Bond way to go, if, uh, if I'm honest. Um, just that, Terry, I'll go to you first. I mean, when you, you kind of heard the news, it's obviously quite sad, but then he's also had a, a quite fantastic life as we're going to look back over. Yeah, it is sad. Um, I mean, it, it, of course, because you, you I mean, because in the way that you would feel grief for losing a, maybe a, shall we say, a distant relative, but of a, of an age, you know, uh, 90, it's a good age, it's a fine innings, it's, you know, it's, it, and, and, and a great life that he's lost. So you don't feel that sense of, uh, of, of tragedy or, or, or loss associated with it. I must confess, although I, I mean, I, I do feel sadness when, you know, famous people that I like pass away. You know, uh, you know, I, I don't, you don't know them, but, you know, so you, you know, I don't necessarily become overwhelmed with grief, but it, these are moments in which you you can stop and reflect upon why you have so much love for this man's work and how important he is to you. Um, and I've, I've uh, in recent years, because largely because of this podcast, largely because of the direction this podcast has gone, my, my focus has been on the, you know, the, the post Connery uh, Bond films. You know, I've had the opportunity to express my devotion to On Humanity's Secret Service. I've been had the opportunity to, you know, rewire your brain on Moonraker. I've I've, I've had the opportunity to to to, to celebrate Roger Moore, uh, Roger Moore and his movies. Uh, and in fact, I've probably spent less time reflecting on just how much those I, I love those Connery movies. And and I suppose this is a, an opportunity to do precisely that. Yeah, and, and Graham, I mean, when you look at those Connery movies as well, I know that we'll come to it. Um, you just can't think of James Bond without thinking of Sean Connery and you know different actor that that landed in that role if Connery hadn't been cast in there I think we could have been looking at a a different direction different franchise but but Connery kind of made Bond what it was even though perhaps it's it's changed a bit and you look back on those films and you still go wow those some of them really do stand the test of time and and Connery still manages to look effortlessly cool when you look back on them you, you you can barely believe how quickly things move in the 1960s when you think how many films that he packed in to such a short space of time between dr no and 
uh, and Dimes Are Forever. It, it's what nine years, and and there he makes all these the, these films, and the whole style, the whole outlook of the world changes in that short period of time, and it's not as if Bond changes throughout that. He is he is a constant. All right, all right the, the 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 costumes change around him. The 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 way the films are made changes around him, but it, he is a constant. And I think that's that's one of the things that I I think he really got right with that role because essentially James Bond is a man out of time. He was created. He was created by Ian Fleming, and Ian Fleming was an old snob, very much of the old school. And yet, here comes Sean Connery, a very working class man, comes in and turns it into something else. It's it's sort of lost in in between times. It it, it is a and, it, and it's only an idea that we've really come back to in the latest incarnation by by Daniel Craig, which was uh, which is this whole sort of persons in the elite but somehow lost in it and uh, and i think that 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 that's what helped him carry it through all that time and uh and, and i think he's carried that through into a lot of films he's done he's never he's never conformed to be anything else he's never he's never put on a, a russian accent to play a russian uh, submarine commander or a, a spanish egyptian um, swordsmith or or whatever he was playing uh, so it never really conforming just turning up and being Sean Connery and everyone loved it for it because you know, that's all you needed mm. when you look at those so I, I you know you start revisiting those films so I, I I recently watched from Russia with love again which is obviously as, as long-time listeners of this podcast will know is one of is is probably our choice of, of the the best Bond film, and it's just a, a, a fantastic film. And, and Terry, um, I was looking at that and went, almost by the time you've got two films in, you feel like Connery is so comfortable and has established the character, whereas, you know, you can get other franchises as well where you launch characters that it can sometimes, you know, you can still be three films in and you still don't feel that the actor's got a grip on it. But But by film two you knew exactly what Bond was, even if he might not have been exactly who Fleming had in mind for it when uh, when he wrote the stories. Uh, yes, indeed. I mean, he has a tremendous screen present. There's that anecdote, which may or may not be true, about um, Spielberg saying that when he was shooting him for um, last Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, that he had to... He had to adjust the the screen, the the, the camera, that he didn't. You know, his screen presence was such that he was overshadowing Harrison Ford, who was the lead in the in show. Every time they were in a in the same shot together, and he had to just ever so slightly just move it along, just to Harrison Ford more screen presence in order to compensate for the physical, almost spiritual presence that Connery has. Um, he is, um, he's a magnet, um, and, 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 uh, you know, probably maybe not the actor as Graham, I think possibly alludes to with the greatest, um, with the greatest range. But when you've got a presence like that on screen, you don't need it that much really, do you? 
Um, and to play a character like James Bond, the kind of character that James Bond is, you can understand why they, you know, Saltzman and Broccoli looked at them and thought, my God, you know, this guy, you know, he's huge, he's handsome, hugely charismatic and exudes that charisma, you know, through celluloid, through chemical, a series of chemicals passing through into your brain. It's an extraordinary talent to, to have. Um, and so, yeah, and you know, mercifully, I think he probably didn't think too much about playing the role and just simply just did it. It came naturally to him. Uh, and it's in a way, it's a miracle, really, because, I mean, you're right. It, it, it could have there been other franchises or other series and other action heroes that have come and gone. Um, and, they, and, and the ones that succeed are the ones where the actor gets it bang on straight away. Uh, and obviously, Sean Connery is a is is one of the definitive examples of that. Yeah, Graham. I mean, what, what when we look back on sort of Bond, and you know, we've talked a lot about the uh, the stereotypes and the tropes, and and you know, the cultural impact of of Bond. A lot of that can obviously be traced back to Connery. What, when we look at Bond today, like how much can you see that has been informed by? what Connery brought in those, those early days um, of the Bond franchise? I think you've got to look at, at, at whenever a new actor has come in to play Bond. They've always said, and pretty much every one of them, it's almost like they've been briefed, has said that you can't, you can't follow whoever came previously. You've, you've simply got to bring your, yourself to it. And Moore was the one who really took over i mean yes lazenby we love we love on a magic secret service but but lazenby uh doesn't he's not an actor he doesn't come in very well and and a lot of the film he doesn't even talk in it he's he is carried through by by a supporting ca uh, cast that is amazing but when roger moore comes in he goes well i can't act like that I don't, that's not what I do. So I'll do what I've been doing in The Saint and The Persuaders and even Ivanhoe and trust me, everyone will love it. And they did. Gary, they did. They did love it. <laughs> uh, and so I think a lot of, also as well, what you've seen in the post-Moore era is you've seen actors coming in and saying, well, I want to take this back or I want to dial it back a bit from what it was. Um or I will go back to source, and we'll 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 or we'll update it. We'll give you a bond for the modern age because I think with every decade you see you see that 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 bond is is old hat. It doesn't sit comfortably with whatever our sensibilities are, and and that has been the same true throughout the whole history of Bond. It, it's not something new. It's not something that's come around in 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 the woke modern times. Bond has always been Bond, and Bond has always been problematic for one reason or another. And and I think that when you see when when Dalton took over and he said I was going to take it back to to Fleming here, I'm going to start smoking again. Uh, I'm going to show you a, a rougher edge. That was really just a backlash to Moore because Moore had been in there for so long. Then you get Brosnan coming in, and he's got to give you a different Bond. Now this is basically post cold war bond this is there are no enemies you've got to make enemies up and and really you don't have you you, you need someone who's a bit lighter a bit lighter on his feet not to the same sort of extent as more though i would i would suggest that that he is perhaps 
as camp, if not even more camp in certain respects, than Moore was. <laughs> and then you bring it around as well into a post 9-11 world. And what do you need now? You need, you need Daniel Craig and you need him being tough, but you don't need him being snob anymore. That's completely out, out of it. So you've got to try and airbrush that away. Um, and, but you can see there are bits in there that, that, that they harken back to with Connery, especially with, 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 with Craig, when you've got, you know, he's driving around in the DB5. The, the, the DB5 is synonymous. There have been some fantastic cars, but they always go back to the DB5, don't they? Uh, you know, Brosnan drove it and, and Craig has, has driven it in pretty much every film, hasn't he? I think is, is, it turns up, and and as well there are the musical cues as well, like David Arnold um, pastiching uh, uh, John Barry whenever he can, uh, and so that also brings the feeling of of Connery, and it, as well Craig was actually wearing similar suits as well. So these are things that that, uh, but these are things that I think people go back to because Connery was so defining in the role. And and it's always been the fact that well Connery was the best oh, blah 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 that's always been the 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 the, the narrative since since he gave up the role, uh, and it, it's been and it's worked with in the franchise's favour as much as against it because I think it's always helped keep that conversation bubbling under. So I think they've been they they've been more than happy to to keep keep that that bubbling over. Just to say, oh yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll compare this Bond to, to Connery because, and while while the actors may say, well, that's not very helpful for the for the for the film company, so I'm sure it's really really helpful because it's kept it alive and kept it going for all this time. Yeah, I mean, when you you kind of look at <clears throat> look at that Connery kind of uh, the look and the feel that was established in Connery is such a. A, a huge part of that. I mean, you mentioned the DB5. The, that, I think the, the iconic shot of him from Goldfinger leaning against there in his his smart suit in the in the hills. And it's just it's just a, a shot that you look at that and you know that's Bond and you know exactly just from that one shot you've got all these inferences that that come off from it. And I mean, Terry, I've, I've kind of talked about you know how much I how good um, from Rush with Love is, but I, I would you say that kind of a lot of, of really where Connery kind of suddenly lands in and establishes we, we've obviously got Dr. No and you've got from Russia with Love, which are, which are great films, which set the franchise up and it was hugely popular. And then you have Goldfinger, which is, you know, is a fantastic film, one that is much kind of parried. But when again, when you look at that, that is almost Connery on on his A game, um, almost to a kind of the same way that that Moore was on his A-game with The Spy Who Loved Me. They, they've kind of, they've fitted in nicely. They, they've worked out everything in there. And it's almost like that that's the peak. It, you can't really get much better than, than that point. And that then informs everything else that comes after it. Yeah, I think we've discussed before, we've concluded before that Goldfinger is the sort of like the first James Bond movie in which the, the, the mould is set um, on what a, what, a, what a classic James Bond adventure is. Um, and uh, part of that is, yeah, is that, you know, Connery is now three movies into the franchise, into his run and has the role absolutely down pat. But it is, again, worth just restating what we said earlier. And that was that, you know, he he got it from the very first scene in which he appears in Dr. No, 
he exudes James Bond. So it's not a long journey for him to get to Goldfinger, but there is an ease of his performance, a comfortableness in his role that that uh, that that comes through in Goldfinger. And again, a lot of this is quite simply because also by this point, the the James Bond machine is now up and running, and we've got this sort of like classic Bond adventure. And he has the benefit also of of a, of, of a massively increased budget. I mean, I've got that picture to which you refer of him in the hacking jacket leaning up against the, the, the Aston Martin on the, um, uh, uh, on the, on the, on the Alpine, in the Alpine mountains. Uh, I've got a massive picture of that up on my wall. You can't see it at the moment because you're listening to a podcast, but, um, it's, it's, I assure you it's there. Um, and, and it, it, it's, it is an absolutely gorgeous picture, but the, it, the, where the manner with which he's leaning up against it, his arms are in his pockets. You know, he's looking at the camera. You know, he looks he looks great. He looks comfortable. He looks confident. But he's also got that kind of cockish, sort of like rebellious air uh, of of somebody who you know is clearly you know a character that's you know playing part of the establishment, but at the same time, you know, lives by his lives by his own rules to use a, a to use a cliche or lives outside the rules a man who has a license literally to kill people and not go to prison and 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 it, and connery i just think exudes that at all times during most of the franchise I, I i would argue that perhaps it kind of trails off a bit towards in diamonds are forever which i know we've 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 talked about as not being not being our favorite movie but but that for me is 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 Pete Connery, and this is the this is the template, you know, that all other Connery actors look at, you know, and and say, you know, this is this is kind of the gold standard, and what we're doing is a variation on that. But really, you know, that is James Bond. I mean, you you don't if you if you're going to be a Bond actor, you don't go for me. You don't go to Fleming straight away. And say I'm going to get my bond from Fleming. I'm going to, you say no. I'll go. I'll go to Connery and get get what I need from him. It doesn't have to be the same, but get what you need from him. And the, the likelihood is, is that you'll 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 have a, you'll produce a really good bond. And I think maybe that's where Craig does get it from. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of Connery Connery in, in in the Craig movies, to my mind. I find it really interesting as well with um you know that that iconic shot which is is that you've mentioned, um, which is worth lingering on because also when we've talked about Bond being a man out of time, I mean, you know, the, the books themselves, he is a, you know, he is a terrible snob. He's a member of, of the establishment. And by the time you get to the sixties, that's not really what was going on in the sixties. And yet Connery managed to make this character part of popular culture. Bond became, is very cool in that movie. And Bond is, is as much of a 60s as everything else. And yet what you look at what where the world was at and how you were moving away from that kind of establishment set, a character like James Bond shouldn't really exist in, in that area. That, that feels almost like belongs a couple of decades beforehand. And yet here he is, this, this kind of example of, of 60s cool, 60s culture summed up in one shot, which... Um, is kind of fascinating. And, and as you kind of move through, like Bond now, I think Craig potentially sort of made Bond a bit cool again. And, and they do when they you have that changeover of Bond. But you wouldn't necessarily say Bond could ever be 
as cool as he probably was back in the 60s because that imprint of culture still always has to then then pull back to the 60s and again that's because as you say you've got a, an actor in there who is establishment but knows he's not establishment as well in every way that he carries himself um in in that kind of film um one other thing that i wanted to touch on as well graham was that terry mentioned diamonds of forever and by that stage um i think it's not uncharitable to say that Connery was was phoning it in a little bit throughout that film. Um, and then when you look at kind of Connery post-Bond and you compare that with Moore post-Bond as well, I always get the sense that Moore had a much more comfortable relationship with the character once he'd hung up his tuxedo than Connery did. Um, there's so many anecdotes about Moore of just he seemed to... to still love Bond and knew how much he meant to people. Whereas Connery, and, and this might be because Connery still kind of could see a lot more of his career ahead of him than the more I think was, was comfortable where he was. But Connery definitely felt like he, he, he had a slightly more ambivalent relationship over the rest of his career with Bond, albeit he would return to it many times. You, you can't look inside someone's head, but you do get a feeling that his relationship with Bond, obviously there was a souring between the producers and 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 himself. Um, for for the producers, he was obviously a necessary evil. He was obviously someone who was who made the franchise. He's obviously someone who was worth the money that he was the that he was due. Um, but they did obviously didn't want, want, want to pay him. I think quite famously, I think he, he he sued every film company he ever he ever worked for, apart from Paramount. I think I think they were the only film company he didn't sue. So it, he was someone who who wouldn't put up with the sort of nonsense that 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 film companies are 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 apt to 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 pull on actors. He perhaps felt like the the that the industry was something to mistrust, whereas more was saw the industry as something to use and he had done all the way through i mean he was going back to 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 his saint days when he he actually tried to buy buy the rights to it um and so he was savvy to what was what was going on and i think he he knew that that, that bond was was just a meal ticket for him and that, that, that he was set for life really i mean he was always he, he was he was popular uh, before he got it so to actually go through it uh, to get the role himself and to hold on to it for so long was great for him uh, and yeah i think he he really loved that i mean he he made that role when more did it more did it his way and people hired him because they wanted more bond they didn't hire him and say can you make it can you play this like bond but a bit sean connery like because he was never, never going to do that and they, and they wouldn't have bothered they could have got uh, connery in to do that cheaper as it was in the 70s and 80s, you could get him for next to nothing. So, yeah, it, it is weird about what their, their, their relationship with it. And I, I think as well, also, as well, the, the relationship changed because I think the producers recognised that actors were utilising Bond in their other roles. So they they did start putting in things in the contract, like you can't take any other roles where you wear, wear a tuxedo. You, you cannot do that. So there was the the they were controlling in some ways and very very much like the old sort of like the um, system of Hollywood, but um, yeah, I, I think it was more down to 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 
to his relationship with with filmmakers um rather than 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 anything anything about the the change of times and i think that that followed it throughout his whole career yeah terry i mean when when you look at connery post bonds as well um i think you could probably say he had a slightly tricky 70s definitely i think i mean which is unfortunate because i mean it's worth just bearing in mind that while he was playing James Bond, he also did a movie with Alfred Hitchcock, a film called Marnie, which I, I don't know if you guys have seen. But, um, I mean, it, it did look as though, you know, for a while he must have perhaps thought or had ambitions of becoming, you know, a proper A-lister um, and, and a Hollywood royalty. But I would imagine that probably, you know, this happens, I think, less now, but, you know, you, typecasting was definitely a, a, a problem for actors who were played and become synonymous with a specific role for so many years um, that they didn't always necessarily find it um, easy to then move up according to, you know, their own ambitions and expectations. No, I, I, I think that's, that's an interesting point. But I, I think personally that he was out of time then. Because I think Sean Connery, as an actor in the '60s, was a throwback. I think he's more in the sort of Cary Grant mold, mold than, say, the Paul Newman role, which is what A-listers were becoming as the '60s rolled on. They were looking more at people like Robert Redford and their acting style rather than someone like Sean Connery. And I think this is this is what Bond was almost a, an, an island for him. It was someone that that they wanted to. David Niven type, uh, or a Cary Grant, or a James Mason role, but these by by the time this comes around, these guys are not getting leading roles anymore. These these are being sidelined. These are playing old men now, not old men being sleazy with with Audrey Hepburn. These are being old men um, with old wives. So, I I think this this is what held back Sean Connery's. Uh, career in certain respects but then it also gave it a bit of gravitas when he came around back in the 80s i think it was it, it was that gravitas that that really gave him his second lease of life in the 80s and yeah of course he does a pile of garbage in the 70s he also does a load of really good films as well yeah i mean exactly i mean i i, I agree i mean he, he was going to uh you know, I, I think he probably had ambitions of being of of joining the the, the royalty set, and 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 things had moved on, and I think he'd been typecast. And there were other issues as well, maybe surrounding you know, his appearance. Uh, you know, it was well known that he wore a wig, you know, during the movies, and and you know that might have had a problem. And also, you know, as I said, I, he had tremendous range as well. So maybe he wasn't, you know, um, you know, wasn't wasn't the the actor that, that would get that very very best roles, but you know, as I, as I was about to say, he's, he he would have been used to being King of the Hill of the Bond franchise, you know, the star of the movies, you know, an iconic character, world world famous actor, and then to go from that, and then to go perhaps to find yourself being cast in roles in which you know you're not in movies that aren't like that anymore, which you don't get to go down, you know, you don't get to meet you know heads of state. Don't get to shake hands or bow to the Queen, you know, you know, at, the, at movie premieres with that, and that that might have sort of added to the the general malaise. That and the fact that seventies movies in character altered, 
you know, they became a lot brown. I didn't know. Um, and, 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 and as Graham points out, you know, that's, you know, Connery is, Connery looks beautiful in Technicolor and the seventies sort of started moving away from that really. And I, I don't think he really kind of, he kind of really got that, you know, he wasn't a Pacino, was he, or anything like that. Mm. Well, I mean, you've got, <clears throat> I think one of the most interesting films that you've got in, in probably the, the latter Connery, when I think that there are a few films where he started sort of coming back in and probably came back into fashion um, to a certain extent, but again, touched on, on where he could put his range and, and almost playing to his strengths. Um, and Graham, probably one of those was, was the name of the Rose, the Umberto Echo um, adaptation. And that, to me, felt like you have a few films, and that, that was one of them, where I think people looked at Connery and went, well, hang on, he's, you've got an adaptation here from, from a very type of, different type of literary genius than, than Fleming. And actually, you've got a... Um, yeah, Connery can do... He, he's still going to be Sean Connery, but he's bringing something else to the role. And, and again, you kind of see that through some of his other ones as well. Red October, which, which we've mentioned, which is very much still Connery being Connery, but he's he's expanding out a little bit and able to still bring that that kind of difference and gravitas and magnetism that potentially people had, had forgotten about by that stage and obviously culminates in, in The Untouchables, for which he, he gets an Oscar. Yeah, there is a point, isn't there, in the, in the 80s where he goes from being leading man uh, to <clears throat> becoming the mentor, the, the, the guy that the leading man leans on to, to carry him through, to show him how to be the hero he needs to be. Uh, in, in The Name of the Rose, he, of course, he's the, 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 the detective, but he's also mentoring the, the, the younger uh, monk there as well, isn't he? Into into to 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 solving the the, uh, the mystery, and of course in the in the Untouchables, he's the hard nosed, in inverted commas, Irish cop, uh, <laughs> but Jesus, <laughs> um, uh, who is teaching uh, t- teaching a, a, a very fresh faced Kevin Costner the uh, the Chicago way. Uh, yes, uh, but uh, that, that's how it goes on from there, isn't it? I mean, it, it, I think Highlander comes before Name of the Rose, um, uh, and then you've got The Untouchables. Three, three great films in a row. That, that you know, that, that if, if something's going to re- reignite your film career, I think those three were, 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 were the way to do it. And yeah, for the next five or six years, he, he's gold, isn't he? Uh, and he, he just comes out in loads of films, and that the, they know that he is got, either he is starring the, in them himself, and it's usually when he's actually starring opposite someone else that that he gets the bigger the the, the bigger draw. So Humphrey October, uh, The Untouchables, the, those are the ones where he gets, and and Highlander even. Uh, the, these are the ones where he his he's so much more more comfortable and has such an impact and has such an impact in this sort of like this almost cameo type role um i think uh, time bandits was was the one that that really in, in um uh, entered that but I think time bandits is just comes what a couple of years before name of the rose and and yet he's entire two entirely different characters there he's in king Ag- agamemnon there and he's like star he's like strong he's powerful and then you come back a couple of years later and he's like an old monk 
it's uh, five years, yeah, in fairness, and, and he does never say never again in in between those. Yeah. Um, Where he's the name of the roads are, are are out of the same year, so he's incredibly. Uh, I mean, he, in fairness, you know, I mean, what you can say about him is, is that he works. I mean, he pushing he's mm. pushing out movies, you know, almost every year since he's since he's quit. I mean, like so since he leaves Bond. And so, and yeah, I mean, look, we tend to, maybe we we kind of be a bit unkind and think of Zardoz, Zardoz, um, and you know, <laughs> you know, maybe to an extent, maybe the Anderson tapes, which is not a very strong movie, like you know, but you know, there's films like Robin and Marion in the 1970s as well. That that's a, a different kind of Robin Hood movie, and still pretty decent. Uh, and you know, if you like. You know, and I, I think we mentioned before, and Meteor. You know, these are these are enjoyable films. First Great Train Robbery, if not necessarily, you know, classics. But I, I mean, I think it's I think it's you know also worth mentioning that you know by this point, Spielberg has seen him and says, "I want." I mean, I want him in one of my movies, and he goes into mm. Last Crusade, and yeah, again, as Graham points out, in this sort of way. Well, is it a mentoring role? I don't know. He plays an antagonist towards his son, doesn't he? And they have that wonderful relationship that's clearly very loving while at the same time they just cannot, you know, you know, you know, his son resents the father because he neglected him and the, 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 the father neglects the son because he's, he's frankly better. He's become a, uh, he's become better at it and, you know, at, at the job. And and, and it's, it's a it's a, it's a glorious chemistry, and they work really really well. And while I have reservations about the conclusion of that movie, I personally think that in terms of the conclusion of that film, they chose poorly. Um, but um, but I mean, in 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 terms of you know of of uh, of Connery's of uh, good performance, it's it is genuinely genuinely outstanding. And, and yeah, I mean you know he just goes on and becomes. I mean, for me, Rod October is just, you know, Graham and I have a mutual friend who, for whom Red October is the, his very favourite movie, and you can see why. Mm. But just a few words, if I may, on, on Graham's remarks about how he doesn't, you know, doesn't play, when he plays foreigners, he plays like, like non-Scottish people, and he plays them unashamedly. So I think that that's a perfectly, that's perfectly legitimate way to portray people, because what you're doing is you're portraying the person. You're not portraying their nationality. Yeah. You know, and, and these, the characters that he plays are defined by the kind of human beings there. Marco Ramius is a specific type of human being, and that's the kind of human being that Connery plays him, and he plays him expertly. I mean, his, his nationality is, is important in terms of the plot of the film, but, you know, it's not important in terms of the, the kind of human being that he is. And so it's mm. perfectly legitimate to, to, to not affect an accent. I I think it's weird when people say, you know, well, you know, that person's, you know, doesn't affect this accent. I mean, like, if you want really badly want someone to play a Russian character, then cast a Russian, you know. But if you don't, if you want them to be played by a Western actor, then then just say, look, have at it, mate, and just like, you know, do do what you have to do. I mean, it, it, I think it's perfectly legitimate, and and doubly so with Highlander. I love the fact that he's half Spanish and half Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think one of the things for me as well, when you look at um, Connery as a whole, and we mentioned a lot of those films, and then you look who he's also on screen with, and I think this, this picks up on your point as well, Graham. Like He's on screen with Harrison Ford, Kevin Costner. Um, obviously, in Name the Rose, you, you've got a very young 
Christian Slater in in there as well. You've got like the you've got actors who like if you looked and you went, yeah, these are these are Hollywood heavyweights. These are people who are not bad actors. And yet Connery is the one who you're drawn to in these films. He even if he's not in a good film, um, and I'm thinking of say you go on a little bit later and you've got a film like Entrapment, for example, which is uh, is, is not one of the, his, his finest hours. But again, just the camera is completely drawn to him. And you you can't you've got the, these kind of modern, you know, modern Hollywood royalty or, or modern kind of Hollywood A-listers who can carry a movie by themselves who are are guaranteed at this point in time, certainly with the likes of kind of Costner and Ford and Nicolas Cage as well. These are people who you can put top billing and, you know, you, you're relatively guaranteed of returns. So they're all good actors. And yet Connery will just outshine them all on screen because he has just that kind of old school magnetism. And again, I think this goes back to your point as well, um, Terry, that he is, uh, uh, and, and Graham, that we talked about earlier about that kind of, you know, he's got that element of very old school Hollywood. Those, those really magnetic characters on screen, like you think of Connery and then you potentially also think in, in Bond, you also go back a little bit to say somebody like Bogart in Casablanca, who has that same kind of lausch coolness about him. It's very kind of old school Hollywood. And you see that when you get these older actors who start, you know, taking these mentor roles or, or sort of appear against that younger generation of A-listers, there's just something that the camera absolutely loves them and cannot get away from them. And they enhance the movie. You can have a bad movie with them in and there's still bits to enjoy. And I find it, you know, I think that to me is probably one of the great compliments that you can give Connery as an actor. That, yeah, sure, like like Moore, he potentially didn't have the greatest range. You could look at somebody like Dalton or Craig and say that they they have a much greater range. You could cast them in lots of other things, which they have been, and you'll get um, a, a good response. And you know, they can adapt. But there's that magnetism that you've you've got with somebody like Connery that is just really hard even for for some other A-listers to compete with yeah I mean I think that's a fascinating point I did while you were while you were talking I was thinking about about American equivalents to him and the closest I can think of would be someone like Clint Eastwood and again like Connery around very very much at the same time but were sort of lost in that sort of post sort of golden age Hollywood and before that sort of late 60s 70s new wave of 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 leading men um but again someone who had a resurgence in his career when he became older and became this more sort of like the old hand mentoring or or just just gray-haired old crazy man in the corner um but very much that that sort of same amount of screen presence. Just some people who, and and like more, he didn't put on a different voice. I mean, he turned up and was Clint Eastwood, wasn't he? And that's 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 the sort of. Go- but that harkens back to that golden age. You never see James Mason turn up in a film and uh, as anyone else but him. Um, but that amount of presence 
was is key. I mean, Henry Fonda was making films into the eighties, but he was an old man by then, and but still had that 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 presence when he comes in there. And 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 when you when you take an actor like that, uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in America is a very very um, uh, well, sorry, Once Upon a Time in the West is, is a very um, a, a good example of that, where where he's on he's got so much presence there. Um, and you 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 get the feeling that you'll never see actors like that again because that's not what that's not the the sort of development path you they they come through on. It's always great when you see those actors go up against modern actors where you see two or two different types of actors in the same film and it works well. It, we see it in the in the James Bond franchise. We talked talked about it a few weeks ago, didn't we? When we talked about um, how uh, Christopher Walken and, and Roger Moore work so well together on the screen, shouldn't work. But it does. It works brilliantly. Uh, and you, you think of other examples. I think a great example, a very, very famous example, is Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier in Marathon Man when they're on the screen. Two different, entirely different actors, two amazingly good actors. And these are brilliant actors, but, uh, but they, they, they come together on screen from an entirely different point of view, and, they, and it still works. Yeah, there was nothing uh, method about Olivier, was there? No, and there was nothing method about Connery. I suspect uh, he was just very much, you know, these were his lines and just act, dear boy, act. Yeah, I think as well. Well, let's given that we we've kind of wandered into this area, should we touch on on a film that we all have a lot of time and, and love for because it feels like it's a really relevant film to almost kind of bookend Connery's career. Or admittedly, he made plenty of other films afterwards. Um, but Terry, that is The Rock, um, the the probably the unofficial, unofficial James Bond outing, um, where you obviously have Nicolas Cage in there as well. But um, there's no doubt that that is Connery's film all the way through into there. And um, yeah, I, I'm just going to hand over to you to let you, you talk about The Rock, because I, I suspect you are probably going to have thoughts, feelings, opinions, and a lot of love. <laughs> I think I've said it, must have said it before on numerous ago. We, no, we, we definitely have. I mean, The Rock is, is, should be regarded as an unofficial James Bond film uh, and not an unofficial James Bond film in the way that Never Say Never Again is, in that, you know, you, it's, it's got an original script as opposed to a rehashed version of, of Thunderball. Uh, I mean, yeah, obviously, it is Cage's vehicle, and technically, Connery is playing supporting actor. Um, and so I suppose, you know, you, yeah, you can make, you can draw, you can say, oh, no, it's not actually a James Bond film because, you know, John Mason isn't the lead character. But, I mean, he does steal this, this film. He makes the film what it is. Um, just uh, for people who haven't seen it, they must have done. Obviously, you know, he's playing an old secret, British Secret Service agent who's been captured presumably by, you know, a, a, the American Secret Service at some point. And has been squirreled away, and has been disavowed by the U by, by by Her Majesty's government. And has met a fate that is consistent with the potential fate of James Bond, the character. You know, that is not something that's outlandish in a James Bond story. That could, you know, an old James Bond, effectively washed up, uh, makes one too many mistakes, doesn't quit probably when he should do, doesn't take the desk job. You know, ends up you know out in the cold. Uh, and then it, it finds himself basically in, in a maximum security prison, you know, in, in the United States. And, you know, I, I always like to think 
I can't remember the name of the character, the guy who has the massive beef with, I'm afraid. Um, uh, uh, but it's played by the guy from the West Wing, and, I, uh, and, and uh, it's 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 uh, it, it, there's real beef between those two. Uh, and I would like to think that that guy is also effectively Felix Leiter in that <laughs> role, and that it's just a friendship that's gone massively sour. And it's a glorious, it's a it's a massive counterfactual. It's a counterfactual of a fictional construct, um, so it makes complete sense. Uh, or if you want to borrow a Star Trek expression, it's a mirror universe, maybe. Um, but it's a, I think it's a great it's a it's a great example of where James Bond could have gone. I think it's the final reel that Diamonds Are Forever needed. I think <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, totally, absolutely. It was that would have been yeah. It would have that would have been that would have been great. I mean, I I think that we should you know petition whoever it is who makes these decisions, and I don't think it's anybody that it actually be adopted uh, as a James Bond film. I mean, there are people, there are Star Trek fans who put on their DVD shelves next to all their Star Trek movies, they put Galaxy Quest in. <laughs> and I think that The Rock uh, Rock should have similar status with James with James Bond fans. That's, it is an that's just because triumph. you're a massive Michael Bay fan, though, isn't it, though? Sorry. Well, I mean, this is the thing. This is the amazing thing is I loathe Michael Bay's movie, but movies in general. But I mean, I I do adore this movie. I mean, if my favorite, one of my favorite scenes that Sean Connery's ever been in is that is the sequence when he's confronted with Ed Harris, Ed Harris's character in the General, in 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 uh, you know, and he's like, if you ask me, you're a fucking lunatic. I think that's just a a brilliant a brilliant scene, um, and it it. it also, it's really it is actually beautifully observed because well written because it's it's that stereotypical sort of like British snarkiness at the Americans and, and that kind of like stereotypical American uptightness and 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 you know, you know sense of warped sense of duty uh, and and it plays it really really well and it's just beautifully shot i mean it's a beautifully made film i mean it, it's very very exciting fantastic basically it's set in san francisco i mean what more what more could you what more could you want out of a out of, a, out of an action film and what more could you want out of a james bond film i think it's actually i, I know we're on connery but it struck me as a, as a slight side tangent um that i am with you i'm not a, the greatest michael bay fan in the world but the rock is a cracking film and there's no doubt that bay could do action sequences can you imagine if, like, Michael Bay had, had taken one of the um, the lesser Brosnans, shall we say, and went into there? Or even if Michael Bay was working, like, 20 years earlier and had Ken Adam next to him as well on the production design, I reckon you could have got a cracking film out of that. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe. Sorry, Graham, go on. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> No, no, I, I wasn't. I wasn't saying anything. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No, I, I, no. It, it, I'm just trying to process that in my in my head now, Gary. I'm trying trying to think of, of of where he would have gone if he'd been given the 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 given the keys to the to 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 Bond. Um, yeah, I I, th- I think you would have loved it. I mean, because because I, I I think another thing about about the the rock that that that, that Terry also loves is the fact it's a Hans Zimmer uh, uh, soundtrack as well, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I know, can I say, I can't wait to hear the soundtrack to, 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 to No Time's Die. I was very excited about that. May I, also, may I perhaps make an observation that where we, instead of looking at Michael Bay, we should be looking 
um, at um, uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer. Mm, yes. uh, I mean, this is very much peak Bruckheimer. We're talking Bad Boys, Crimson Tide, you know, Con Air, Armageddon. That this is th- th- these are the kind of movies they are. I mean, these are. It, I mean, it's it, it would have been very interesting if maybe they'd given Jerry Bruckheimer the keys to a Bond movie <laughs> uh, to see what would have happened there. Uh, but again, I mean, these are this is this is we're, we're moving into fan fiction here, guys. <laughs> would have been all the explosions, all the explosions, <laughs> all absolutely all the explosions. Yeah, and lots of like extremely yeah, yeah and, and lot lots of terrible villains, ghastly ghastly villains, really awful people. Um, and, oh man, yeah, that would have been quite cool actually. <laughs> and, We'll bring it back back to Connery, and we've we've talked obviously a fair bit um, on there. Um, Connery's legacy overall, and um, you know, we've we've kind of gone through his career from from coming in, and and obviously his his great screen presence. Um, Graham, what what kind of legacy would you say um, that Connery has kind of left onto the Bond franchise? Uh, not a very comfortable one, I don't think. I think it, he's he's left something that uh, that every actor that's followed him has had to live up to, but that's kept them on their toes. That that's actually made them work for it. And uh, and and I think when when you look at each each one who's come afterwards, they've they've had to try and imprint their own personality on there if they've got a personality to try to try and get get something out of the role uh and to very well with varying degrees of success of course i think that the whole of the of the uh, of the eon production line uh, has been based on connery's interpretation of bond and in fact the later books were tailored because of True. of Connery's portrayal of Bond, uh, it f- famously Fleming uh, uh, resisted uh, Connery's uh, casting in the role, um, but was completely blown away by by Dot Dot to know, and and obviously you know, with good good reason because he played him perfectly. May not have been Fleming's snobbish ideal of of the person who he wanted to be because that's who bond was um but yeah he he defined the role and he defined bond uh so i think that obviously anyone who takes the role now has to tip a hat to him you can ignore everyone else in between really but you've got to go back to first principles and Connery is first principles as far as Bond is concerned, not not Fleming. People can say, oh, you've got to go back, back to Fleming, but what they really mean is you've got to go back to Connery. Yeah, Terry, what, what's your um, take on Connery's legacy for the franchise? Yeah, I mean, I, I, he, 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 he is the gold standard of, of, of James Bond. I mean, he's the, he is the original and and the definitive James Bond. And, and I, I mean... The, you can love and enjoy and prefer his successes if you wish you can absolutely do that but what i don't think you can deny is is that you know this franchise would not be anything that it is now 
and he probably wouldn't even be around now were it not for those early movies, were it not for Connery. And it's not, of course, it's not just down to him. Of course, it isn't. It's down to Broccoli and Saltzman. It's down to Peter Hunt. It's down to Ken Adam. It's down to, it's down to a whole host of people who who, who breathed life and, and gave life to this franchise. But at the centre of it is the, the actor that plays James Bond. And if 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 it hadn't have been for him. You know, it just simply wouldn't have, have, have been as successful as it was. And he, you know, he defined the role of James Bond and then set that marker. And everybody then, any actor who looks, looks at James Bond, well, yeah, as Graham says, they go to Connery first. By all means, go to Fleming, go to Roger Moore, go to Pierce, go to definitely go to Tim and definitely, definitely, definitely go to Daniel. Um, but because I mean, for me, I think he's Daniel is probably the best, the second best James Bond. It's a, it's a, a massively subjective thing. Um, uh, uh, but you must, you must start at Connery before anything else. He's the original. Mm. Um, well, I think I was going to wrap up, but also I think, um, one thing that, that's fair to mention, and just as a given that we are doing tributes as well, I don't think we can pass this podcast, um, Terry, without talking about Diana Rigg as well, who um, passed between us doing our previous podcast and this one. And when we've talked about screen presence as well, I think you can fair to say that um, if you've got a definitive bond in Connery, you've also got almost a, somebody who, along with Telly Savalas, carries a Bond movie almost by herself as well. Yeah. Uh, I completely agree. I mean, obviously, you know, a, 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 a wonderful actress who played a variety of different roles all the way up to 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 very, very recently. Whole generation of Game of Thrones fans who know and love Diana Rigg um, for the character that she played in that. And uh, but obviously for those of us of a certain vintage who, you know, remember the Avengers and obviously for those of us who adore on Her Majesty's Secret Service and, you know, then adore Diana Rigg. And yeah, I mean, I have I have defended George Lazenby's honour, uh, despite some of the frankly scurrilous criticisms, unwarranted, <laughs> scurrilous, unworthy uh, and, you know, frankly, just downright mean criticisms by some people on this podcast, you know, specifically Graham, about George Lazenby's performances, but he is uh, fundamentally correct <laughs> in his analysis. And, and and this movie is, you know, this movie is 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 carried by you know Telly Savalas and, and Diana Rigg, um, and she makes him look great and makes it work, um, and works extremely hard and, and probably has to be extremely patient with this guy who's just a you know a model he doesn't really know how to act doesn't really hasn't had any had any training hasn't had any doesn't have any of the acting disciplines um but more she just lends herself to it she's she's uh, she's an authentic and believable you know uh character who can win the heart of james bond and that's the that's the toughest thing that she does is that she wins the heart of a character of a character whose heart is up until that point totally impregnable and she does it and, and convincingly. We believe him. When he said, when, when, when George Lazenby rather woodenly declares his love for, you know, uh, 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 for, 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 for Tracy in that wooden barn. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that it's, that it's made of wood, that barn. <laughs> um, 
uh, you know, he, he, uh, he you know, we may as well get as much wood out there as possible. There's plenty of wood going on in that scene. Later um, wood with Chris Wood as well. <laughs> um, we believe it. The audience believes that that that, that James Bond, a man as 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 cold-hearted and cold-blooded as James Bond, could give it all up um, uh, for 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 Tracy, uh, and it's 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 fantastic, and uh, it's a, a crowning achievement on a on a number of, on a whole list of wonderful performances that she's put in throughout her career. Uh, and I don't think I can uh, say anything fine, kinder about her. Yeah. And, and Graham as well, like Terry sort of talked about just how fine an actress she was. And, and also when we touch on that, that kind of almost old school charm and coolness, um, if Connery was cool, Diana Rigg wasn't just cool. She was um, firmly imprinted, I probably imagine, onto the brain of every teenage boy in that era as well. And just a fantastic icon of of screen and cinema as well. And, you know, the fact that she's appeared in, in one movie, but yet if you were going to kind of hone down on one brilliant Bond girl, you've got to fancy that, that Diana Rigg would be right up the top there as well. Well, certainly, certainly. Uh, the it's it's an uh, she makes it look effortless, and of course it's not. It requires a hell of a lot of work for something like that. But the fact that that she she does carry him through this, she 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 does all the heavy lifting, and it doesn't look like she's doing that at all, uh, and and makes it believable, makes makes it credible, makes you makes you. Well, you fall in love with her as well because that's 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 what she's there to do, and and she and she does it perfectly. She is here as as this damaged individual, and and yet you're so vulnerable, but also strong, powerful. Uh, it, 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 people say about about you know Bond has finally met his match, and and this is when he, he actually did, and 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 yes, yeah, she was she was brilliant, and she been brilliant as 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 terry said all the way through to to still working to within a few years ago so it's yeah fine that 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 for me is, is some some some's dying to rig up because she wasn't just a pretty face she wasn't just someone who was just gonna 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 Sorry, we we have an intruder in at this point. Somebody who's also very upset about Diana Riggs. I'm, I'm not surprised. Well. I'm not surprised. I'm there too. I was like that. I was like that. I've 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 I've, I've had a while now to to sort of like, like uh, to, to 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 restore myself. But yeah. I was like that for days, basically. Uh, I think it's um, I think it, it's fair to say, and, and you know, we have 2020's been a rubbish year in many respects, but um. It's sad to have lost two real icons of the screen and two two icons who I think made Bond what it is. And I think for me, like I, I you know, I, I really kind of got to say, oh, I posted this on Twitter, but I think the fitting quote is is the final lines from on Her Majesty's Secret Service, especially for Diana Rigg, which is, you know, she's only resting, she's only sleeping. We've got all the time in the world, and. That is probably, I know that we've talked a lot about Connery, but that to me is probably one of the best moments of the Bond franchise completely. And as, as Terry said, there is no way you could have got to that bit, even with an actor who is potentially not a, 
as versatile or emotionally good at conveying emotion as Lazenby. But that last scene in there, and I think that to me is one of her, her biggest legacies. It just, it, it's a real punch and it's just one of the most beautifully vulnerable moments of the whole franchise in there. Probably one of the best scenes, I think, in, in Bond history, which, uh, which doesn't involve Connery. Yeah, she, yeah, she, she makes, she makes, she, she turns James Bond into a human being for a few minutes uh, rather than a cartoon character. Um, and I mean, that's a wonderful gift to give to James Bond fans. Yeah, totally. Um, so uh, I guess it remains for me to say thank you to um, both of you. And, you know, 2021, there'll be a, a new Bond film eventually, whenever it hits the uh, hits the cinemas or streaming service or however else we'll be getting it in, in 2021. Um, and then potentially a new Bond to look forward to. And of course, you know, there will be more podcasts this year as well um, with us. So you've got more to look forward to as well. But um, yeah, any final thoughts from either of you two on on what is really, I guess, a passing of an, an era for James Bond? Yeah, I think it's it, it's weird. I, I actually um, I actually went through the release dates of old Bond films. And uh, I worked out that there's been more of a gap between the scheduled release of No Time to Die and the supposedly actual release date of No Time to Die than there was between From Russia With Love and Goldfinger. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> so it, it, <laughs> not... <laughs> this film has got to come out sooner or later, isn't it? It's, it's, it's just got just, just to gotta come out. Otherwise, people will forget Bond, won't they? No, they won't. No, they won't. Because we've got Connery, and we've got, and how can you forget that? So well, he's on. Um, he's on every bloody day on ITV Four. How can you possibly forget? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're constantly watching ITV Four, Terry, then yes, obviously. <laughs> what, are you, what, are you, what, what are you trying to say? <laughs> what is, what's being inferred here? What's being inferred here? We knew, day, we, knew can... would, we knew this day would come because obviously people people move on, people pass on, and and. And he was an old man, and this is what happens. And it's the circle of life, and it's a glorious and beautiful thing. Uh, but he, I mean, he's he, Sean Connery's immortal. In celluloid, he lives forever. Um, and so, yeah, that reminds me to say thank you to to Terry and Graham as ever. Thank you to you, dear listener, for um, indulging us in an hour and a bit of Sean Connery chat. And obviously, you can um, leave your own thoughts and and you know from everything whether you view the rock as an unofficial official james bond film and if you don't then more fool you um but also your other thoughts as to where connery took the role um and you can get us on twitter and on facebook and do remember as well that if you haven't yet subscribed to us on your podcast uh, subscription platform of choice then please do because you'll get more uh lukewarm dubious hot takes throughout the uh, franchise of James Bond. And also you can dig back into our back catalogue of uh, Roger Moore um, bit by bit and also look through uh, you know, other bits and pieces like our, our wonderful directors or our wonderful fan commentaries of a few of the Bond films as well, of which there will be, I'm sure, more coming soon. Um, until then, just wish you say goodbye and uh, get your vodka martinis up and raise a toast to, to Sir Sean Connery for... As I was nearly going there, Shashon Connery. <laughs> Goodbye. Shashon Connery. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, then consider subscribing if you don't already. 
If you don't use a podcatcher, then perhaps you could tell your friends about us. So thanks very much again, and we'll see you next time where we'll be discussing the first James Bond movie, Doctor No.